Hi, everyone. What's up? Welcome to the American Beat of Ground Report, New York City to Monaco. So one of the questions that I'm going to raise with you as we are continuing to, to make the transition um, from uh, Monaco and Paris to New York, because it's a slow transit and it's unsure of its bearings, especially now that Perseverance landed pitch perfect on the moon. Now I'm trying to land us here with much more difficulty and um, maybe even more perseverance being called for. So one of the questions that I'd like to ask, remembering that Levinas wrote about um, um, philosophy, uh, we um, can ask in the meanwhile, what boundarizes the spaces virtual or pocked by empirical qualities from which we speak? What are the spheres and atmospheres that we see as pre-given or uh, that we have to reconstruct each time that we get on podcasts or get a kind of distanciated close up of the other, what's going on and certainly which way the wind blows concerns us, what kind of headwinds do we have or can we count on? And in any case, I'm clocking in on Freud's watch and thinking about how Freud landed his vessels in America and took off with them in his theoretical export-import visitations and how he continues to inflect a certain view of America, even if we don't remember having read it or having been fed, even force-fed our Freudian meals, as in totem and taboo, where there's something that we have to swallow or the morse and remorse and morsels that we eat when certain feasts mark an event. Well, in the film of Wim Wenders called, called Wings of Desire, he claims that the Amis, that's the Americans, the Amis have colonized our unconscious. So there's a new production of inside, outside, 
new and highly symbolical cartographies that we want to consider, including the cartographies of the maternal empire and how land is um, surveilled as a feminine attack zone. This is something that I've mentioned in some of uh, the podcasts and some of my work on, on war and unconscious velocities and, um, and the kind of libidinal investment in, in bombing land and zeroing in on an imaginary maternal body. This is something that I work up doubly with uh, an eye to, since we have two eyes and two breasts, the good and the bad breasts. So Melanie Klein and how we injure the maternal body and pollute it and, and destroy it and Lacan. But um, so all of this is on uh, Freud's watch and I want to consider what he, what his takeaways, so to speak, from America look like and are. And one of the things he appreciated about America, or at least offered a bemused commentary, which wasn't entirely detached from his theoretical groundwork and interest, was the American invention of the flirt and what it means to flirt and flit and flutter in the kind of libidinal unsteadiness that characterizes the philosophy of America, and not negatively. So what it means to flip from one object to another, to be able to affect and practice substitution, which in some philosophical zones is of course a crime. It's a crime to think the other is replaceable or substitutable, but in psychoanalysis, there are corridors according to which the ability to substitute is considered to be very necessary as part of a healing. And here our um, playbook could be Hamlet again, where Claudius tells him to get over his father's death and this loss and his inability to substitute the father or for the father is um, as in Kafka, uh, a fatal calamity. So um, Claudius asks that Hamlet get with the program and kind of start flirting with different um, objects that might summon him into uh, an affirmation of life. So get over this loss, put it behind you, shake it off. That's a, a lesson and an instruction we hear from all sorts of lyrics and dramas and Freudian passageways. Derrida will go with this and also deconstruct, of course, and say, are you sure it's even um, possible to, to in good faith, though, he, he's really critical of anyone having a good conscience about something that's, that puts a red alert on 
if you think you've done well or enough and you've been good enough, that might be problematic. We never reach that place of having kind of absolved ourselves honorably in this life. That's why we invent gods and a God who, who can do that kind of superhuman um, flirt with a sacred loyalty to a, a postulated sense of the good, not necessarily metaphysically bolstered either. But in any case, so, so Freud um, took away and, and kept putting into circulation the American um, behavior or practice or grammar of the flirt that uh, changes up objects of investment and desire and, and doesn't land really. So um, I want us to think about um, the way things move and lose their contours and reemerge and um, land elsewhere. And um, I was flirting with the idea of the weather in America and in Europe. And, and this might seem as an odd way to try to think about the boundaries, the distances, and the infirmities that get announced somehow on some level of consciousness or unconscious insistence with weather reports. Um, I, I want us to think about weather conditions and storms and natural disaster, so-called natural disaster, because we're getting to the point where we collectively recognize that these aren't so natural these so-called natural disasters, but in many ways, part of the destructive bounty of man that, um, that, that is able to uh, count spoilage and pollution and all of those um, dreaded uh, destructions that we're all too aware of, which is good that we be aware of it, but we're also witness to and, and target zones of these misdeeds. You know, the idea of, of the weather came to me as I was considering what's going on in Texas and how it was um, plunged into chaos and encounter with its own ice age and peculiar glacializations. It's kind of existential downsizing, multiplying the stakes of pandemic endangerment. So I was thinking about the way weather um, shows up, takes up a lot of um, the imaginaire and throws us down in, in philosophical tracts and in a historical way as well, because um, one might revert to Kant's thinking and also Goethe and the 18th century was shaken and we're still shaken and quaking with the earthquake of Lisbon, which revealed the demonic part of nature. So this is um, 
something of a different track. I'm trying to bring these tracks together or at least lay them in a parallel way that will make exorbitant sense out of apparent nonsense. So what's our relation to the weather? Which way does the wind blow? How did it come to the point of trying to predict what seems out of our range of critical motion or, or capacity to understand or know? So off the cognitive grid, how did our relation to nature become something that needed to be mastered, understood, predicted, or in some ways restricted? And I would say, besides all the mythologies and one would want to and need to go to the Greeks, of course, but in the 18th century, nature revealed herself to be demonic and capable of sporting what Melanie Klein would call a bad breast, something that is um, annihilating, uh, imperturbably destructive and indifferent to us and, and blows away all the myths of uh, mother nature and a maternalizing coddling that one would wish to, on, under most circumstances, to be able to ascribe to nature a natural development of, of uh, different kinds of um, zones that affect us, make us sick or make us healthy. So now as kind of a comorbidity out of the range even of um, currently usable disposable science, though I'm, there are already indications that weather can be fabricated and rerouted in some ways. Well, if we hang glide with Goethe, we'll see that there's something about illness, pandemic, um, wariness and weariness that is always connected to the weather. If I bring up Goethe, the great German um, writer whom you all know and scientist and, um, and well, statesman, it's also because he was the first meteorologist. Um, and he was the name under which art and science drifted into each other's territories, creating part of a sublime landscape and, and participating in our understanding or let's say uh, generalized in incorporation of alpine desolation and oceanic menace what Kant saw as the dynamic sublime, things that we can't wrap our head around and that are irrepresentable. This is something that Lyotard tried to think about as well or invited us all to think about, which is what in our experience of experience can't be experienced or can't be represented. Um, this is what he um, updated, so to speak, as part of our um, relation to the sublime. 
So when something doesn't take a, a recognizable form and it, it doesn't fit into any of our comforting metaphysics, as Nietzsche would say, or taxonomies, and how does the weather um, present itself or disappear itself, withhold knowledge about itself, um, I, I would want us to consider the changing, flirting, fluttering, um, unpinnable nature of weather increasingly as climate becomes a kind of messaging system that we need to um, decipher. And that seems to be faithfully addressed to us in, in poetry, Werner Hamacher, the great philosopher, wrote a wonderful essay in terms of poetry uh, called the word Wolke. So the word cloud streaming from um, poetic precincts, asking how clouds form in acts of poetic release or depropriation on the brink of immateriality. By depropriation, I mean that we can't appropriate or, or identify with, or there's no such history of in thought or of thought that tries to um, get close to clouds in terms of some sort of identitarian um, rage of, of understanding. There's nothing there. We're on the brink of immateriality. Yet we could um, we we tend to anthropomorphize a, a clouded brow, or when things get cloudy or or grim, we try to bring the clouds home or on our heads in in rhetorical ways that don't usually work very well. But Hamacher brings thought for formations to the clouds of. Ceylon especially in poetry. And um, these ethereal huffs and puffs are detached from earth, as you know, yet of earth and death. And in Ceylon's memory, the dread puffs um, hark from death camps. So these are um, wafts of of horror that we continue on some level of consciousness to inhale injured and injuring by means of irremovable, unearthly pollutants. So you know how little particles, microparticles of pollution travel and there's no reason to assume we don't continue to inhale at least on the level of imaginary um, send-offs that we sign for or interject in some ways or very real material particles that still are coming our way. I know this sounds a little bloated and difficult to follow, but I'm trying to think of our relation to weather, not only in terms of the, um, the overcast skies and thoughts of of climate anxiety, but what this says to us about the unconscious, 
or are histories that can't be easily pinned down or explained away. I'd like to leave the, the grim um, reference to Ceylon in the background, not to, not to in any way as if we could um, dismiss it, but let's hold these clouds in suspension for, for a moment. Now, Freud taught us to think in terms of condensation and displacement, how to locate regions of repression that can swing even on a cloud, how these things morph and remain indistinct, not only in the sense of the anti-structure of the structure of the flirt that doesn't um, condense or, or solidify into a structural anchor that we could latch on to. But Freud's example for the way displacement works in, in obsessional neurosis was the way that Americans can uh, have entire homes on a, um, on a trailer and move it around on the highway. So this displacement of your home and the house is something that um, may seem to have nurtured an aspect of uh, Freud's theoretical speculation. And indeed it did because he told us so. But it also um, has us wonder about how Americans create tolerable versions of a home, which for Rilke and Heidegger and Lenau and so many others, poets and philosophers, is where um, they home in on a highly problematic, irresolvable um, breakage that America as a philosophy more poetic um, deterrent um, offers us. What is a home or a house in America in, in largely not largely, but significantly homeless and racially unjust America, unjust America. You know, I'm not by any means exempting the Europeans. Don't be, don't be foolish. Of course, um, their relation to home and the phantasm of a homeland security um, is is very well addressed strongly and rigorously in so many sectors of extra academic filmic and other um, historical discursive formations that they certainly don't require my cloud formations and clouded vision to, um, to return us to forms of violence and colonial excess that other lands are responsible for. My question, since we're moving to the beat of an American uh, um, link to and linkage to Monaco and Paris, um, I'm asking what's, what is it to be at home or what Heidegger also calls being not at home. He doesn't think only Americans fail to uh, consolidate a homeland or a home space and his version and vision of home, hominess or what Kant calls homeliness, which means ugliness is not to be um, 
prized as, as exemplary. I'm just um, pointing out that this is a recurrent motif that Americans don't know how to be at home or have a home or um, ground a home. There's something not only about the home being moved on trucks, which isn't limited to the material, um, let's say, keep on trucking motif, which also with the Grateful Dead is a very positive thing, so to speak. But um, I'm, I'm hesitating here because positive is no longer positive. It's a scary disease function or cipher. <clears throat> so what does it mean that Americans, um, of course, are obsessive about house, house hunting, uh, their, their living spaces and the normal vocabulary of, of, um, of settlement and, and inhabiting spaces, but also on a dime move around and are nomadic in certain ways. And why was this the obsessive focus of uh, all sorts of philosophical and poetic um, musings with the um, return trip of thinking that Europeans have a more grounded relation to home and home base. And uh, yeah, maybe we've, Americans, I say that ironically because I'm as European as I am American, which is partially true and false. Maybe um, Americans sublimated the home base to baseball to other forms of symbolic games. In any case, locating the home from a European uh, projective place and perch <clears throat> made it seem that America had a ghostless above, that the homes precluded visitations, um, precluded the guardianship and sheltering comfort of good ghosts. So this is something that I would want to pursue with you, this, this ghostly um, uh, kind of evacuation that the great poets and philosophers of Europe project, well, uh, see as a problem in American um, housing developments or underdevelopment. Or does the American um, instability in terms of housing and home and by the way, Susan Bernstein has written a beautiful book on housing in a number of philosophical works, including Wittgenstein and Heidegger. Um, so is, is this something that tells us some, uh, about the European um, distortion of homeland home? Don't forget a home isn't just a home for a single household, but metonymizes very quickly into an entire nation state. So one wonders about these um, projections onto America and also I'm not, I'm not disputing the truth value, that's for sure. Um, but the question might arise of whether America rather is primed on her instabilities, constant drifts, traveling beyond 
the pleasure principle on a kind of self-fashioned death drive through the desert because there's something deserted and desert-like in the relation to housing according to these the stock of um, fantasies and projections that I'm alluding to. Um, Diverse vexed, says Nietzsche, the desert is expanding, even glacializing, uh, which metaphorics allows us to imagine a glacializing desert or desolation that grows and that Nietzsche predicted. So American weather systems are pitching and bitching, showing particularly chaotic facets, turning on the faucets, pouring it on, the homes are leaking, are, are shabby, are exposed, just as the country um, was subjected to the nihilistic disclosure prompted by the pandemic, by COVID, where one saw the um, fragile infrastructure that most of us knew about. I mean, it's not a big revelation or reveal, but it came to a level of articulation and urgency that shares characteristics of a disclosure. Uh, so the weather, you know, in Hölderlin and other romantic poetry, um, the, the weather was approached with respect, not forgetting its divine messaging system. So something is coming from above, from beyond us. Something is sent to us. Um, it's unfathomable, yet bloated with um, portentous meanings. Uh, there was a, um, a respect for the weather in the sense that it's a text that's very difficult to um, manage, it insists on its unreadability, on translatability, and um, it can't be grounded or founded, as you all know. But there was also a, a kind of scandal to turning to a certain kind of art and science of deciphering weather systems, because it seemed that you required or ascribe, uh, arrogated to yourself divinatory skills. And it's not our place to read the weather or report on the weather, if which belongs between uh, somewhere between cognition and speculation, because it belongs to the gods. It's their decision, <laughs> according to 18th century, and I'm fast pacing this, um, to, to, um, to it belongs to a divine force to appoint disaster zones um, that, that come from and as, and are veiled as mere weather, um, still overlapping, as weird as it sounds and warped and backward, we still have this kind of modern or contemporary superstition about the way we frame uh, our relation to weather or receive, um, as they say in California, today we have weather. But that used to be when you didn't have weather and you might have a sprinkle or a drizzle. Now something portentous is blowing up and um, it also has something to do with the vocabulary. I mean, it always did. That's why I'm going back to the 18th century before 
we try a new approach to America, but you know that the, um, the um, horror films and um, stories we tell and various dreamscapes, when they, when they become intensely um, provocative in terms of the dread they spread, they, they're dark and portentous, stormy, there's stormy augury and ominous foreboding. Now these special effects sent from beyond our grasp are pounding the earth in protest. This is one of the major appropriations we have of bad weather. Uh, nowadays, um, you know, it's still a comic element in the news as a kind of supplement to the news when you consider those who discern the elements, their false predictions or uber scientific weather stations of the weather person. Originally, by the way, um, these were called weather prophets, the weather man, so-called man, living on the edge of possible cognition because who knows for certain tomorrow's weather and particular dose of immaterialities. A lot of presuppositions involve this scandal of competing with the gods or God and drawing on the divinatory skills that I mentioned, but also in terms of a causality in what Freud sees as the punitive mindset. <coughs> Pardon. So the weather is here and not here part of a hallucinatory unleashing, a revelation of being maybe, yet not necessarily situated in an ontological comfort zone. Still, it says something about our state of being, our conditions, our relationship to what we know and don't know. Um, we're kind of pounded, taken down a few notches by an unmasterable force that we call weather. And it's something, if it's a thing, it's not a thing, but let me just try to move along with the clouds. It's above and inside the, as an unconscious um, effectivity. So it comes from above, from outside us, and it's also something that Freud claims um, when you hitch a ride with think clouds, so to speak. Um, in Freud's anthropological corner, it's uh, the weather when it gets um, imposing and the intensities increase and call attention to itself and threaten these forms of life that try to live peacefully in bad and good weather. But when it gets um, entirely disruptive, Freud indicates that for the primitive mindset, bad weather comes from our failure to mourn and it involves a crypt formation that would be my add-on, having read a lot of cryptonomy and, and a different kind of unconscious uh, work through that I will want to consider 
by, by discussing New York, the United States, what happens when calamity hits, especially in the form of the Donner Party, those cannibals. <coughs> so bad weather comes as a postcard from a terrible edge that reminds us that we failed to bury our enemies. As, a, as odd as all this <laughs> seems, these are the stories we tell ourselves and that still occupy a part of the unconscious. How did we get to this degradation? What is our relation to the undead, to a country in devastation and pandemic overdrive? And um, I will want to read this on a parallel track with what we're doing here as the part of the ground report in relation to COVID and in the assignment that Joe Biden has taken together with Kamala Harris of creating memorials to the dead and dying. So the grief that has been instituted by this new election is something that um, seems to supersede the grievance that, um, that was pathologically um, capable of supplanting a relation to grief, to grieving, to um, those who have been harmed in the past, in past wars, and also the war zone that the United States has become, even um, with different levels of civil war. And I know this sounds scattered like the rainfall, <coughs> but um, I want us to think about how the reception of bad weather, especially in the territories of the United States, is being received, repressed, reinscribed as an anthropological um, message from some overhyped theological above. So, you know, a lot of the um, more natural, so-called natural um, events that we are confronted with have a strong um, overdrive of, of religious excess that America really is uh, quite proud of that, and ashamed of. And that's what I want to bring us to, to all of these themes of failed mourning, weather disasters and climate change. <coughs> so take care, be well. I'm having some climate issues myself and I wish you strength and health. Thank you.